Hey guys, it's Sunday night, and that means it's Sunday reading night, and I will be reading from a book written by Rudyard Kipling called The Phantom Rickshaw and Other Eerie Tales. I'll be right back. Grab your popcorn and snacks, find a comfy spot, take a seat or lie down, and let me transport you to a place of fantasy, ghost stories, ancient legends, odd creatures, alien encounters, and other magical topics. You may even decide to join the conversation. From faraway lands to your own backyard, with a small dash of pixie dust, turn out the lights and open your minds. The journey is about to begin. Hey everybody, welcome, welcome, welcome. Happy Sunday. I hope you guys have had a great weekend so far, and the reason why I say so far is tomorrow for in the United States and at least California is Martin Luther King Jr. Day, so a lot of people have the day off, so we're kind of like on the hump day of the weekend, which is kind of nice. Let me make an adjustment here with my glasses. Had a little setback again. Probably be back in contact by no later than Wednesday this week is what I'm hoping. But in the meantime, welcome. It's Sunday. My name is Charlotte. I'm going to be your host for the next hour. I'm also the owner of the California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team based out of Sacramento, California. Uh, if you do have paranormal need and uh, th think it might be paranormal, look us up. We're everywhere. Just Google us, California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team, and we'll come up under radio. We'll come up under all kinds of titles, and you can just click on it and find us and shoot us an email. In the case that we can't get you right away, because California is a huge state, we do have psychics on staff who can telephone you. And if it is, you know, if it turns out that it is paranormal, they can actually calm things down before we get out there. So uh, be sure to do that. And uh, also, if you need to find us, like I said, you just Google and uh, we'll come up on Facebook and all those good places. And uh, the, you know, the YouTube page and all that. And if you haven't done so already and you're watching from Facebook and you like what you're seeing here today, please be sure to follow us. We're always looking for followers. Or uh, head on over our YouTube page, youtube.com forward slash at California Haunts Radio. Uh, we've got over 800 videos sitting over there, and they're all different topics. I'm a journalist. I'm a photojournalist. And I like to change it up every once in a while. And so, you know, we, we might have cryptids. We might have UFOs, UAPs, uh, like the psychic medium nasty mats, you know, and things like that. I have them in folders right now. I'm trying to get those 800 videos into the folders to make it easier for you guys to find. And also, if you haven't subscribed yet, feel free to subscribe. It's free. It is, it is free to subscribe over YouTube. And you get all these videos and, and then some because we're going to be expanding and we're going to be doing a lot of different types of uh, things that I think you guys are going to like. We're going to be doing a lot of lives, you know, live on scene shows and things like that and some fun shows in the other studio. Maybe tomorrow night might be a fun show. We'll see how things go. But anyway, I want to thank you all for coming tonight. Tonight is Sunday and on Sunday I read from a paranormal theme book. Uh, sometimes the stories are true. Sometimes it's a fantasy book. But uh, tonight I don't, I can't, I could, I could not tell you if these stories are true. Uh, Roger Kipling, he is a, a, a very famous writer. This book was written in the late 1800s. So that means it's copyright free, which is why we're able to read it. But if you remember the name of Kipling, he is the gentleman who wrote the Jungle Book for a lot of you guys that that grew up on Disney and all that. So he's the one that wrote the Jungle Book. And so he's the one that wrote this this book. And it's uh, The Phantom Rickshaw and, uh-oh, uh-oh, hang on. Damn it. It's going to be like that today. It's going to be like that today. Probably lots of people on the internet. I can see my internet light going off, so I apologize for that. But he's the one that wrote the, the I don't even know where I left off. Oh, The Phantom Rickshaw and Other Eerie Stories. That just totally threw me off. So, uh, Sit yourself down, like I say, grab a snack, and maybe you're having dinner right now or whatever, and uh, put your feet up on the couch or put your feet up in the recliner, put your put your fuzzy wizzies on, and uh, sit back and enjoy an hour of reading from The Phantom Rickshaw and Other Eerie Tales by Richard Kipling. And hopefully my internet holds up because so far we're having internet issues. Surprise, surprise, surprise. This, uh, and does anybody know in the chat room? Uh, has anything like huge happened today that would make the internet do this? Because I don't know. All right, we'll have to see. So again, um, to help us with the FYP, uh, to help us show, you know, to help Facebook and, and YouTube kind of send us out to more places, if you could leave me a thumbs up or a happy face or heart or something, 
um, up there. That really helps me as far as the FYP distribution goes for Facebook and YouTube. That would be a great help. And if you comment in the chat room, that would be a great help too. Now, I'm going to be reading this online, which is on my laptop screen. So I may not be able to get back in time to talk with you, you know, and see your comments. But as soon as I get to the point where we're ending the show, I'll be able to see all your comments. So without further ado, let me have a little drink here and we'll get into the Phantom Rickshaw and we'll, uh, I'll explain where we left off with it. Okay. Rogu, right? Salud. He's eating a frog. Peaceful. So the Phantom Rickshaw, where we left off, was he had had, uh, this, this is, uh, Kipling got this story from somebody, supposedly. This gentleman had had an affair. I believe the woman was married, and uh, I think it was an older woman. And he had had an affair with her, and she passed away. And a year or so, several years later, he had fallen in love with someone else. Well, he starts to see this particular rickshaw around uh, in, in the, the India's town he's, he's living in. And, he, and when he looks in the rickshaw, it's his old lover. And this is where we're at right now. Um, it's starting to drive him kind of nuts because he keeps seeing her, you know, like off to the side and she wants to have conversations with him and he doesn't want to do that because he is in love with this other woman. So that's where we're at with the story. So without further ado, let's get in there. We're going to, I'm going to read for about an hour and the Phantom Rickshaw, Richard Kipling. Why Jack? She cried. What have you been doing? What has happened? Are you ill? Thus driven into a direct lie. I said that the sun had been a little too much for me. It was close upon five, five o'clock of a cloudy April afternoon, and the sun had been hidden all day. I saw my mistake as soon as the words were out of my mouth, attempted to recover it, blundered hopelessly, and followed Kitty in a regal rage. Kitty is his new lover. Okay, so I followed Kitty in a regal rage out of doors. I made the smiles of my acquaintances. I made some excuse. I had forgotten what it was. On the, score of, on the score of my feeling faint, and cantered away to my hotel, leaving Kitty to finish the ride by herself. Okay, let me get this going. Okay. Sometimes, okay, here we go. In my room, I sat and tried calmly to reason with the matter. Here was I, Theobald Jack Pansy, a well-educated Bengal civilian in the year of grace, 1885, presumably sane, certainly healthy, driven in terror and buried in and buried eight months ago, oh, driven in terror from my sweetheart's side by the apparition of a woman who had been dead and buried eight months ago. These were facts that I could not blink. Right. Nothing was further from my thought than any memory of Mrs. Worthington when Kitty and I left Hamilton shop. Nothing was more utterly commonplace than the stretch of wall opposite Pelites. It was broad daylight. The road was full of people, and yet here, look you, in defiance of every law of probability, in direct outrage of nature's ordinance, there had appeared to be a face from the grave. Kitty's Arab had gone through the rickshaw. Oh, Kitty's Arab had gone through the rickshaw, so that my first hope that some woman marvelously like Mrs. Wessington had hired the carriage and the coolies with their old livery was lost. The other thing I want to say is that remember this is eighteen hundreds and. You know, for everybody that's 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 woke or whatever, there might be somebody that gets offended. There's no intention to offend anybody with this. This is the way it's written, and I'll do my best to kind of dance around some of these. But if I'm reading like with the with the coolies, with their old living with loss or whatever, uh, you know, I don't catch it. Please don't hold it against me. It's it's in the book. Okay, that's how things work. Again and again, I went round this treadmill. I thought a thought. And again and again gave up, baffled and in despair. The voice was as inexplicable as the apparition. I had to, I had originally some wild notion of confiding in old Kitty, of begging her to marry me at once, and in her arms to find the ghostly occupant of the rickshaw. After all, I argued, the presence of the rickshaw is in itself enough to prove the existence of, spe of a spectral illusion. One may see ghosts of men and women, but surely never of coolies and carriages. The whole thing is absurd. Fancy the ghost of Hillman, of a Hillman. Next morning, I sent a penitent note to Kitty, imploring her to overlook my strange conduct of the previous afternoon. My divinity was still very wroth, and a personal apology was necessary. I explained 
with a fluency born of night-long pondering over a falsehood, that I had been attacked with sudden palpitation of the heart, the result of indigestion. This eminently practical solution had its effect, and Kitty and I rode out that afternoon with the shadow of my first lie dividing us. Nothing would please her save a canter round Jacko. See what I mean? So let's just let's just go with the flow here. With my nerves still unstrung from the previous night, I feebly protested against the notion suggesting Observatory Hill, Jutug, the I can't say this road, the 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 the, the Boyle Road. Anything rather than the jackal round. Kitty was angry and a little hurt. So I yielded from, from fear of, of provoking further misunderstanding, and we set out together toward Chotasimna. We walked a greater part of the way, and according to our custom, cantered from a mile or so below the convent to the stretch of level road by the San Julie Reservoir. I know you guys love it when I have to pronounce things I can't pronounce. Okay, the wretched horses appeared to fly, and my heart beat quicker and quicker as we neared the crest of the ascent. My mind had been full of Mrs. Wessington all the afternoon, and every inch of the jackal road bore witness to our old-time walks and talks. The, the boulders were full of it. The pines sang it aloud overhead. The rain-fed torrents giggled and chuckled unseen over the shameful story, and the wind in my ears chanted the iniquity aloud. As a fitting climax, in the middle of the level, men called the ladies mile, the horror was awaiting me. No other rickshaw was in sight, only the four black and white, here we go, Japanese, the yellow panel carriage, and the golden head of the woman within, all apparently just as I had left them eight months and one fortnight ago. For an instant, I fancied that Kitty must see what I saw. We were so marvelously sympathetic in all, in all of our things. Her next words undeceived me. Not a soul in sight. Came along, Jack. Come along, Jack, and I'll race you to the reservoir buildings. Her wiry little Arab was off. Arabian horse, I would think. Okay, Arabian horse was off like a bird, my, my, my whaler following close behind. And in this order, we dashed under the cliffs. Half a mile brought us within 50 yards of the rickshaw. I pulled my whaler and fell back a little. The rickshaw was directly in the middle of the road, and once more the Arab passed through it, my horse following. Jack, Jack, dear, please forgive me, rang with a wail in my ears, and after an interval, it's a mistake, a hideous mistake. I spurred my horse like a man possessed. When I turned my head at the reservoir works, the black and white liveries were still waiting, patiently waiting, under the gray hillside, and the wind brought me a mocking echo of the words I had just heard. Kitty, ban Kitty bantered, bantered me a Sorry, Kitty bantered me a good deal on my silence throughout the remainder of the ride. I had been talking up to I had been talking up till then, wildly and at random. To save my life, I could not speak. Afterward, naturally. And from San Ju <laughs> from San July to the church wisely held my tongue. I was to dine with the Mannerings that night and had barely time to canter home to dress. On the road to Leisure Hill, I overheard two men talking together in the dusk. It's a curious thing, said one. How completely all trace of it disappeared. You know, my wife was insanely fond of the woman. Never could, parentheses, never could see anything in her, in myself, in parentheses, and wanted to pick up her old self, rickshaw and coolies, if they were to be got for love or money. Morbid sort of fancy, I call it, but I've got to do what the membership tells me. Would you believe that the man she hired it from tells me that all four of the men, they were brothers, died of cholera in the, on the way to the hardware? Poor devils. And the rickshaw has been broken up by the man himself. Told me he never used a dead Mamshiv's rickshaw. Spoiled his luck. Queer notion, wasn't it? Fancy poor little Mrs. Wessington spoiling anyone's luck except her own. I laughed aloud at this point and my laugh jarred on me as I uttered it. So there were ghosts of rickshaws after all, and ghostly employments in the other world. How much did Mrs. Wellington give her men? What were their hours? Where did they go? And for visible answer to my last question, I saw the infernal thing blocking my path in the twilight. The dead travel fast, 
and by shortcuts unknown to ordinary coolies. I laughed aloud a second time and checked my laughter suddenly, for I was afraid I was going mad. Mad to a certain extent, I must have been, for I recollect that I reined in my horse at the head of the rickshaw and politely wished Mrs. Wellington good evening. Her answer was one I knew only too well. I listened to the end and replied that I had heard it all before, but should but should be delighted if she had anything further to say. Some malignant devil, stronger than I, must have entered into me that evening, for I have dim recollection of talking, of yeah, of talking the commonplaces of the day for five minutes to the thing in front of me. Mad as a hatter, or devil, or drunk, Max, try to get him to come home. Surely that was not Mrs. Mullington's voice. The two men had overheard me speaking to the empty air, and had returned to look after me. They were very kind and considerate, and from their words evidently gathered that I was extremely drunk. I thanked them confusedly and cantered away to my hotel. There changed and arrived at the Mannerings, ten minutes late. I pleaded the darkness of the night as an excuse, was rebuked by Kitty for my unlover-like tardiness, and sat down. The conversation had already become general, and under cover of it, I was addressing some tender small talk to my sweetheart when I was aware that at the further end of the table, a short red-whiskered man was describing with much broidery his encounter with a man, or with a mad unknown that evening. A few sentences convinced me that he was repeating the incident of half an hour ago. In the middle of the story, he looked round for applause as professional storytellers do, caught my eye, and straightway collapsed. There was a moment's awkward silence, and the red-whiskered man muttered something to the effect that he had forgotten the rest, thereby sacrificing a reputation as, as a good storyteller in which he had built up for six seasons past, or which he had built up for six seasons past. I blessed him from the bottom of my heart and went on with my fish. In the fullness of time, that dinner came to an end, and with genuine regret, I tore myself away from Kitty, as certain I was of my own existence that it would be waiting for me outside the door. The red-whiskered man, who had been introduced to me as Dr. Heatherly of Simla, volunteered to bear me company as far as our roads lay together. I accepted this offer with gratitude. My instinct had not deceived me. It lay in the readiness of the mall, and in what seemed devilish mockery of our ways, with a lighted headlamp. The red-whiskered man went to the point at once, in a manner that showed he had been thinking it over all night. I say, Panze, what the deuce was the matter with you this evening on the, on the Elysium Road? The suddenness of the question wrenched an answer from me before I was aware. That, said I, pointing to it. That may be either D, T, or I's for aught, I know. Now you don't liquor. I saw as much at dinner. So it can't be D and T. There's nothing, whatever, where you're pointing. Though you're sweating and trembling with fright like a scared pony. Therefore, I conclude that it's eyes, and I ought to understand all about them. Come along home with me. I'm on the blessings of the lower road. To my intense delight, the rickshaw, instead of waiting for us, kept about 20 yards ahead, and this, too, whether we walked, trotted, or cantered. In the course of that long night ride, I had told my companion almost as much as I have told you here. Well, you spoil one of my best tales that I've ever laid tongue to, he said. But I'll forgive you for the sake of what you've gone through, young man. Let this be a lesson to you to steer clear of women and indigestible food till the day of your death. The rickshaw kept steady in front, and my red-whiskered friend seemed to derive great pleasure from my account of his exact whereabouts. Eyes, Panthe, all eyes, brain and stomach. And the greatest of these three is stomach. You've too much conceited brain, too little stomach, and thoroughly unhealthy eyes. Get your stomach straight, and the rest follows. And all that's French for a liver pill. I'll take sole medical charge of you from this hour, for you're too interesting a phenomenon to be passed over. By this time, we were deep in the shadow of the Blessington Lower Road, and the rickshaw came to a dead stop under a pine-clad overhanging shale cliff. Instinctively, I halted too, giving my reason. Heatherly wrapped out an oath. Now, if you think I'm going to spend a cold night on the hillside for the sake of a stomach, 
have brain, have eye illusion. Lord, have mercy. What's that? There was a muffled report, a blinding smother of dust just in front of us, a crack, the noise of rent boughs, and about ten yards of the cliffside pines, undergrowth, and all slid down into the road below, completely blocking it up. The uprooted trees swayed and tottered for a moment like drunken giants in the gloom, and then fell prone among their fellows with a thunderous crash. Our two horses stood motionless and sweating with fear. As soon as the rattle of falling earth and stone subsided, my companion muttered, Man, if we'd gone forward, we should have been ten feet deep in our graves by now. There are more things in heaven and earth. Come home, Pansy, and thank God. I want to peg, I want to peg badly. We retraced our way over the church ridge, and I arrived at Dr. Henley's house shortly after midnight. His attempts toward my cure commenced almost immediately, and for a week I never felt it. I never left his sight. Many a time in the course of that week did I bless the good fortune which would throw me in contact with Simla's best and kindest doctor. Day by day my spirits grew lighter and more equable. Day by day, too, I became more and more inclined to fall in with Heatherly's spectral illusion theory implicating eyes, brains, and stomach. I wrote to Kitty, telling her that a slight sprain caused by a fall from my horse kept me indoors for a few days, and that I should be recovered before she had time to regret my absence. Heatherly's treatment was simple to a degree. It consisted of liver pills, cold water baths, and strong exercise, taken in the dusk or early dawn. For, as he sagely observed, a man with a sprained ankle doesn't walk a dozen miles a day. And your young woman might be wondering if she saw you. At the end of the week, after much examination of pupil and pulse, and strict injunctions as to diet and walking, Heatherly dismissed me as brusquely as he had taken charge of me. Here is his parting benediction. Man, I can certify to your mental cure. And that's as much as to say I've cured most of your bodily ailments. Now, get your traps out of this as soon as you can, and be off to make love to Miss Kitty. I was endeavoring to express my thanks to him for his kindness. He cut me short. Don't think I did this because I like you. I gather that you've behaved like a blackguard all through. But, all the same, you're a phenomenon, and as queer a phenomenon as you are a blackguard. No. Checking me a second time. Not a rupee, please. Go on and see if you can find the eyes, brain, and stomach business again. I'll give you a, a lock for each time you see it. Half an hour later, I was in the Mannerings drawing room. I was in the Mannerings drawing room with Kitty, drunk with the intoxication of present happiness and the foreknowledge that I should never be more that I should never more be troubled with this hideous presence. Strong in the sense of my newfound security, I proposed to ride at once, and by preference, a canter round Jacko. Never had I felt so well, so overladen with vitality and more and mere animal spirits as I did on the afternoon of the 30th of April. Kitty was delighted at the change in my appearance and complimented me on it. In her delightfully frank and outspoken manner, okay, we left the Mannerings house together, laughing and talking, and sent and cantered around the Chotasimla Road as of old. I was in haste to reach the the Sound Jolly Reservoir, and there make my assurance doubly sure. The horses did their best, but seemed all too slow to my impatient mind. Kitty was astonished at my boisterousness. Why, Jack, she cried at last, you are behaving like a child. What are you doing? We were just below the convent, and from sheer wantonness I was making my whaler plunge and curve it across the road as I tickled it with the loop of my, with my riding whip. Doing, I answered. Nothing, dear. That's just it. If you'd been doing nothing for a week except lie up, you'd be as righteous as I. Singing and murmuring in your feastful mirth, joying the, joying the feeling to be alive, joying the feeling of yourself alive, lord over nature, lord over of the visible earth, lord of the senses of five. My quotation was hardly out of my lips before we had rounded the corner above the convent. And a few yards further on, we could see across the San Jolly. In the center of the level road stood a black and white stood the black and white liveries, the yellow panel rickshaw, and Mrs. Keith Lessington. I pulled up 
looked, rubbed my eyes, and I believe must have said something. The next thing I knew was that I was lying face down on the road with Kitty kneeling above me in tears. Has it gone, child? I gasped. Kitty only went more bitterly. Has what gone, Jack, dear? What does it all mean? There must be a mistake somewhere, Jack. A hideous mistake. Her last words brought me to my feet, mad, raving for the time being. Yes, there is a mistake somewhere, I repeated. A hideous mistake. Come and look at it. I had an indistinct idea that I dragged Kitty by the wrist along the road to where it stood, and I employed her, for pity's sake, to speak to it, to tell it that we were betrothed, that neither death nor hell could break the tie between us, and Kitty only knows how much more to the same effect. Now and again, I appealed passionately to the terror, to the terror in the rickshaw to bear witness to all I had said and to release me from a torture that was killing me. As I talked, I suppose I must have told Kitty of my old relations with Mrs. Wellington, for I saw her listen intently with white face and blazing eye. Thank you, Mr. Pansy, she said. That's quite enough. Psych, Gora, I don't know what it means. The Sykes, impassive, as Asians always are. Okay, we'll make sure we get that right. The Sykes, impassive, as Asians always are, had come up with the recaptured horses. And as Kitty sprang into her saddle, I caught hold of the bridle, entreating her to hear me out and forgive. My answer was the cut of her riding whip across my face from mouth to eye, and a word or two of farewell that even now I cannot write down. So I judged, and judged rightly, that Kitty knew all. And I staggered back to the side of the rickshaw. My face was cut and bleeding, and the blow of the riding whip had raised a livid blue wheel on it. I had no self-respect. Just then, Heatherly, who must have been following Kitty and me at a distance, scampered up. Doctor, I said, pointing to my face. Here's Miss Mannering's signature to my order of dismissal, and I'll thank you for that, Locke, as soon as convenient. Heatherly's face, even in my abject misery, moved to laughter. I'll stake my professional reputation, he began. Don't be a fool, I whispered. I've lost my life's happiness, and you better take me home. As I spoke, the rickshaw was gone. Then I lost all knowledge of what was passing. The crest of Jacko seemed to heave and roll like the crest of a cloud had fallen upon me. Seven days later, on the 7th of May, that is to say, I was aware that I was lying in, in, in Heatherly's room as weak as a little child. Heatherly was watching me intently from behind the papers of his writing table. His first words were not encouraging, but I was too far spent to be much by, to be moved by them. Here's Miss Kitty has sent back your letters. You corresponded a good deal. You corresponded a good deal, you young people. Here's a packet that looks like a ring and a cheerful sort of note from Mannering Papa, which I've taken to the liberty of reading and burning. The old gentleman's not pleased with you. And Kitty? I asked Dolly, rather more drawn than her father from what she says. But this, by the same token, you must have been letting out a, a number of queer reminiscences just before I met you. Says that a man who would have behaved to a woman as you did to Mrs. Wessington ought to kill himself out of sheer pity for his kind. She's a hot-headed little, she's a hot-headed little woman, your mash. We'll have it too that you were suffering from D.T. when that row on the jackal road turned up. Says she'll die before she ever speaks to you again. I groaned and turned over to the other side. Now you've got your choice, my friend. This engagement has to be broken off, and the Mannerings don't want to be too hard on you. Was it broken through DT or epileptic fits? Sorry, I can't offer you a better exchange unless you prefer hereditary insanity. Say the word and I'll tell them it's fits. All Sima knows about that scene on the ladies' mile. Come, I'll give you five minutes to think it over. During those five minutes, I believe that I explored thoroughly the lowest circles of the inferno, which it is, which it is permitted man to tread on earth. And at the same time, I myself was watching myself faltering through the dark labyrinths of doubt, misery, and utter despair. I wondered, as Heatherly in his chair might have wondered, which dreadful alternative I should adopt. Presently, I heard myself answering in a voice that I hardly recognized. They're, they're, conf they're confoundedly particular about morality in these parts. Give him fits, Heatherly, and my love. Now, 
Let me sleep a bit longer. Then my two selves joined. And it was only I, half-crazed and devil-driven I, that tossed in my bed, tracing step-by-step the history of the past month. But I am in Simla. I kept repeating to myself, I, Jack Panze, am in Simla, and there are no ghosts here. It's unreasonable of that woman to pretend there are. Why couldn't Agnes have left me alone? I never did her any harm. It might just as well have been me as Agnes, only I'd never have come back on purpose to kill her. Why can't I be left alone, left alone and happy? It was high noon when I first awoke, and the sun was low in the sky before I slept. Slept, as a tortured criminal sleeps on his rack, too worn to feel for the pain. Next, I could not leave my bed. Heatherly told me in the morning that he had received an answer from Mr. Mannering, and that, thanks to his, Heatherly's friendly offices, the story of my affliction had traveled through the length and breadth of Simla, where I was on all sides much much pitied. And that's rather more than you deserve, he concluded. Pleasantly, though, the Lord knows you've been going through a pretty severe mill. Never mind. We'll cure you yet, you perverse phenomena. I declined firmly to be cured. You've been much too good to me already, old man, said I. But I don't think I need, tr- I need to trouble you further. In my heart, I knew that nothing Heatherly could do would lighten the burden that had been laid upon me. With that knowledge also came a sense of hopeless impotent rebellion against the unreasonableness of it all. There were scores of men no better than I whose punishments had at least been reserved for another world. And I felt that it was bitterly, cruelly unfair that I alone could have been singled out for so hideous a fate. This mood would in time give place to another where it seemed that the rickshaw and I were the only realities in a world of shadows. That Kitty was a ghost, that Mannering, Heatherly, and all the other men and women I knew were all ghosts. And the great gray hills themselves, but vain shadows, devised to torture me. From mood to mood, I tossed backwards and forward for seven weary days, my body growing daily stronger and stronger, until the bedroom looking glass told me that I had returned to everyday life, and was as other men once, uh, as other men once more. Curiously, enough of my face showed no signs of the struggle I had gone through. It was pale indeed, but as expressionless and commonplace as ever. I had expected some permanent altercation, visible evidence of the disease that was eating me away. I found nothing. Let me check back to you guys on StreamYard. Okay, make sure people are hearing me. Cool. All right, moving on. On the 15th of May, I left Heatherly's house at 11 o'clock in the morning. And the instinct of the bachelor drove me to the club. There I found every man knew my story as told by Hedley and was, in clumsy fashion, abnormally kind and attentive. Nevertheless, I recognized that for the rest of my natural life, that I should be among, but not my fellows. Okay. And I envied very bitterly indeed the laughing coolies on the mall below. I lunched at the club and at four o'clock wandered aimlessly down the mall in the vague hope of meeting Kitty. Close to the bandstand, the black and white liveries joined me, and I heard Mrs. Wessington, old appeal, at my side. I had been expecting this ever since I came out, and was only surprised at her delay. The phantom rickshaw and I went side by side along the Chodosimla Road in silence, close to the bazaar. Kitty and a man on horseback overtook and passed us. For any sign she gave, I might have been a dog in the road. She did not even pay me the compliment of quickening her pace, though the rainy afternoon had served for an excuse. So Kitty and her companion, and I, my ghostly light of love, wrapped around Jacko and couples. The road was streaming with water, the pines dripped like roof, roof pipes on the rocks below, and the air was full of fine, driving rain. Two or three times I found myself saying to myself almost aloud, I'm Jack Pansy. I'll leave at Simla, at Simla. Everybody, or everyday ordinary Simla. I mustn't forget that. I mustn't forget that. Then I would try to recollect some of the gossip I had heard at the club. The prices of so-and-so's horses, anything. In fact, that related to the workday Anglo-Indian world I knew so well. I even repeated the multiplication table rapidly to myself to make quite sure that I was not taking leave of my senses. 
It gave me comfort and must have prevented my hearing Mrs. Wessington for a time. Once more, I wearily climbed the convent slope and entered the level road. Here Kitty, excuse me a second, and the man started off at a canter, started off at a canter, and I was left alone with Mrs. Wessington. Agnes, said I, will you put back your hood and tell me what, what all this means? The hood dropped noiselessly, and I was face to face with my dead and buried mistress. She was wearing the dress in which I had last seen her alive, carried the same tiny handkerchief in her right hand, and at the same and the same card case in her left. A woman eight months dead with a card case. I had to pin myself down to the multiplication table and to set both hands on the stone parapet of the road to assure myself that at least this was real. Agnes, I repeated, for pity's sake, tell me what it all means. Mrs. Wessington leaned forward with that odd, quick turn of the head I used to know as well, so well, and spoke. If my story had not already so madly overleaped the bounds of all human belief, I should apologize to you now. As I know that no one, no, not even Kitty, for whom it was written as some sort of justification of my conduct, will believe me. I'll go on. Mrs. Wessington spoke, and I, and I walked with her from the San Jolly Road to the turning below the commander-in-chief's house as I might walk by the side of any living woman's rickshaw, deep in conversation. The second and most tormenting of my moods of sickness has suddenly laid upon me. And, like the prince in Tennyson's poem, I seemed to move amid a world of ghosts. There had been a garden party at the commander-in-chief's, and we two, okay, and we two joined the crowd of homeward-bound folk. As I saw them, it seemed divided for Mrs. Wessington's rickshaw to pass through. I'm sorry. I, pa I apologize. This stuff's all like together on here. So as I saw them, it seemed that they were the shadows, impalpable, fantastic shadows that divided for Mrs. Wessington's rickshaw to pass through. What we said during the course of that weird interview, I cannot, indeed, I dare not tell. Heatherly's comment would have been a short laugh and a remark that I had been mashing a brain, eye, and stomach chimera. It was a ghastly and yet, in some indefinable way, a marvelously dear experience. Could it possible? Could it be possible? I wondered that I was in this life to woo a second time the woman I had killed by my neglect and cruelty. I met Kitty on the homeward road, a shadow among shadows. If I were to describe all the incidents of the next fortnight in their order, my story would never come to an end, and your patience would be exhausted. Morning after morning and evening after evening, the ghostly rickshaw and I used to wander through the similar together. Wherever I went, there were four black and white liveries following me and bore, and, and bore me company to and from my hotel. At the theater, I found them amid the crowd or yelling Japanese outside the club veranda. It's Japanese. So there's a J there with Japanese. So I'm, you know, I'm assuming it's Japanese. I could be wrong. I'll have to look that up. After a long evening of yell, after, okay. After a long evening of whilst at the birthday ball, waiting patiently for my appearance. And in broad daylight, I went calling. Save that it cast no shadow, the rickshaw was in every respect as real to look upon as one of the wood and iron. More than once, indeed. I have had to check myself from warning some hard-riding friend against cantering over it. More than once, I have walked down the mall deep in conversation with Mrs. Wessington to the unspeakable amazement of the passerby. Before, I had been out in about a week. I learned that the fit theory had been discarded in favor of insanity. However, I made no change in my mode of life. I called, wrote, and dined out as freely as ever. I had a passion for the society of my kind, which I had never felt before. I hungered to be among the realities of life, and at the same time, I felt vaguely unhappy when I had been separated too long from my ghostly companion. It would be almost impossible to describe my varying moods from the 15th of May up to today. The presence of the rickshaw filled me by turns with horror, blind fear, a dim sort of pleasure, and utter despair. I dared not leave Simla, and I knew that my stay there was killing me. I knew wherever that it was my destiny to die slowly 
and a little every day. My own anxiety was to get the penance over me as quietly as might be. Alternatively, I hungered for a sight of Kitty and watched her outrageous flirtations with my successor, to speak more accurately, my successors, with amused interest. She was as much out of my life as I was out of hers. By day, I wandered with Mrs. Wessington, almost content. By night, I implored heaven to let me return to the world as I used to know it. Above all, these varying moods lay the sensation of dull, numbing wonder that the seen and the unseen could mingle so strangely on this earth to hound one poor soul to his, to his grave. August 27th. Heatherly has been in indefatigable in his attendance on me, and only yesterday told me that I ought to send in an application for sick leave, an application to escape the company of the Phantom, a request that the government would graciously permit me to get rid of five ghosts in an airy rickshaw by going to England. Hesley's proposition moved me to almost hysterical laughter. I told him that I should wait, the end quietly as Simla, and I am sure that the end is not far off. Believe me, that I dread its advent more than any word could say. And I tortured myself nightly with a thousand speculations as to the matter of my death. Shall I die in my bed decently as an, as an English gentleman should die? Or... In one last walk on the mall, will my soul be wretched from me to take its place forever and ever by the side of that ghastly phantasm? Shall I return to my old lost allegiance in the next world, or shall I meet Agnes loathing her and bound to her side and bound to her side through all eternity? Shall we two shall we two hover over the scene of our lives till the end of time? As the day of my death draws nearer, the intense horror that all living flesh feels towards escaped spirits from beyond the grave grows more and more powerful. It is an awful thing to go down quick among the dead with scarcely one half of your life completed. It is a thousand times more awful to wait, as I do in your midst, for I know not what unimaginable terror. Pity me, at least on the score of my delusion, for I know you will never believe what I have written here, yet as surely as ever a man was done to death by the powers of darkness. I am that man. Injustice too, pity her. For as sincerely as ever a woman was killed by man, I killed Mrs. Wessington, and the last portion of my punishment is ever now upon me. And that is the end of that story. So now we're going to be moving on and this is called My Own True Ghost Story. By, again, this is all uh, Kipling stuff. So let's we can move on here. And it opens up as, As I came through the desert, thus it was. As I came through the desert, the city of dreadful night. Okay, Somewhere in the other world, where there are books and pictures and plays and shop windows to look at, and thousands of men who spend their lives in building up all four lives, lives a gentleman, who writes real stories about the real insides of people, and his name is Mr. Walter Besson. But he will insist upon treating his ghost he has published. Half a, but he will insist upon treating his ghost. Okay. He has published half of a workshop full of them with levity. He makes his ghost seers talk, familiar, talk familiarly, and in some cases flirt outrageously with the phantoms. You may treat anything from viceroy to vernacular paper with levity, but you must behave reverently toward a ghost, and particularly an Indian one. There are, in this land, ghosts who take the form of fat, cold, pobby corpses and hide in trees near the roadside till the traveler passes. Then they drop upon his neck and remain. There are also terrible ghosts of women who have died in childbed. These wander along the pathways at dusk, or hide in the crops near the village, near a village, and call seductively. But to answer their call is death in this world and the next. Their feet are turned backward that old sober men may recognize them. There are ghosts of little children who have been thrown into wells. These haunt well curbs and the fringes of jungles and wail under the stars or catch women by the wrist and beg to be taken up and carried. These and the corpse ghosts, however, are only vernacular articles and do not attack sahibs. 
No native ghost has yet, has yet been authentically reported to have frightened an Englishman, but many English ghosts have scared the life out of both white and black. Nearly every other station owns a ghost. They are said to be two, there are said to be two as Simla, not counting the woman who blows the bellows at Syrie Dak Bungalow on the old road. Usuri has a house haunted of a very lively thing. A white lady is supposed to do to do night watchmen round a house in, in Lahore. Dalhousie says that one of her houses repeats on autumn evenings all the incidents of a horrible horse and precipice accident. Murray has a merry ghost, and now that she has been swept by cholera, will have room for, for a sorrowful one. There are officers' quarters in the Myanmar, whose doors open without reason, and whose furniture is guaranteed to creak, not with the heat of June, but with the weight of invisibles who come to lounge in the chairs. Bishawan possesses house that none will willingly rent. Bishawan. Is that it? Bishaw. Sorry, Bishawar possesses houses that none will ever willingly rent. And there is something, not fever, wrong with the big bungalow in Alabad. The older provinces simply bristle with haunted houses and march, and march phantom armies along their main thoroughfares. Some of the Dak bungalows on the Grand Turk Road have handy little cemeteries in their compound, witnesses to the changes and chances of this mortal life. In the days when men drove from Calcutta to the northwest, these bungalows are, bungalows are objectionable places to put up in. They are generally very old, always dirty, while the Kanzama is as ancient as the as the bungalow. He either chatters, he either chatters like a senile, or falls into the long trances of age. In both moods, he's useless. If you get angry with him, he refers to some Sahib dead and buried these 30 years, and says that when he was in the Sahib service, not a Kanzama in the province could touch him. Then he jabbers and moves and trembles and fidgets among the dishes, and you repent your irritation. In these Dak bungalows, ghosts are most likely to be found. And when found, they should be made a note of. Not long ago, it was my business to live in Dak bungalows. I never inhabited the same house for three nights running and grew to be learned to be learned the breed. I lived in government-built ones with red brick walls and rail ceilings, an inventory of the furniture posted in every room, and an excited snake at the threshold to give welcome. I lived in converted ones, old houses, officiating as Dak bungalows, where nothing was in its proper place, and there wasn't even a fowl for dinner. I lived in second-hand palaces where the wind blew through the open-work marble tracery, just as uncomfortably as through a broken pane. I lived in Dak bungalows where the last entry in the visitor's book was 15 months old, and where they slashed off the curry kid's head with a sword. It was my good luck to meet all sorts of men, from sober traveling missionaries and deserters flying from British regiments, to drunken loafers who threw whiskey bottles at overpassed, and my still greater good fortune just to escape the maternity case. Seeing that a fair proportion, proportion of the tragedy of our lives here acted itself in Dak bungalows, I wondered if I, I wondered that, that I had met no ghosts. A ghost that would voluntarily hang about a Dak bungalow would be mad, of course, but so many men have died mad in Dak, bung Dak bungalows that there must be a fair percentage of lunatic ghosts. In due time, I found my ghost, or ghosts, rather, for there were two of them. Up till that hour, I had sympathized with Mr. Bassan's method of handling them, as shown in the strange case of Mr. Lucraft and other stories. I am now in the opposition. We will call the bungalow catmal Dak bungalow, but that was the smallest part of the horror. A man was sensitive hide. With a sensitive hide, has no right to sleep in Dak bungalows. He should marry. Catmel Dak bungalow was old and rotten and, and unrepaired. The floor was of worn brick. The walls were filthy, and the windows were nearly black with grime. It stood on a bypath largely used by native subdeputy assistants of all kinds, from finance to forests. But real subhebes were rare. 
The Cosmop, who was nearly bent double with old age, said so. When I arrived, there was a fitful, undecided rain on the face of the land, accompanied by a restless wind, and every gust made a noise like the rattling of dry bones and the, and the stuffed toddy palms outside. Stiff, st stiff toddy palms. Stuffed toddy palms. The Cosmo completely lost his head on my arrival. He had served a sahib once. Did I know that sahib? He gave me the name of a well-known man who has been buried for more than a quarter of a century and showed me an ancient type of that man in his prehistoric youth. I had seen the steel engraving of him at the head of a double volume of memoirs a month before, and I felt ancient beyond telling. The day shut in, and the Cosmo went to get me food. He did not go through the pretense of calling it Kanam man's victuals. He said Ratu, and that means, among other things, grub, dog's rations. That was no insult. There was no insult in his choice of the term. He had forgotten the other word, I suppose. While he was cutting up the dead bodies of animals, I settled myself down. After exploring the Dak bungalow, there were three rooms beside my own, which was a corner kennel, each giving into the other through dingy white doors fastened with long iron bars. The bungalow was a very solid one, but the partition walls of the rooms were almost jerry-built in their flimsiness. Every step or bang of a truck echoed from my room down, the, down to the other three, and every footfall came back tremulously from the far walls. For this reason, I shut the door. There were no lamps, only candles in long glass shades, and an oil wick was set in the bathroom. For bleak, for bleak and altered misery, that Dak bundle was the worst of the many that I had ever set foot in. There was no fireplace, and the windows were not open. So a brazier of charcoal would have been useless. The rain and the wind splashed and gurgled and moaned around the house, and the toddy palms rattled and roared. Half a dozen jackals went through the compound singing, and a hyena stood far off, off, stood far off and mocked them. A hyena could convince the Sadducee of the resurrection of the dead, the worst sort of dead. Then came the ratu, a curious meal, half native and half English. In composition, with the old Cosma babbling behind my chair about dead and gone English people, and the wind-blown candles playing shadow bo peep with the bed and the mosquito curtains. It was just the sort of dinner and evening to make a man think of every single one of his past sins, and of all the others that he intended to commit if he lived. Sleep, for several hundred reasons, was not easy. The lamp in the bathroom threw the most absurd shadows into the room, and the wind was beginning to talk nonsense. Just when the reasons were drowsy, with blood sucking, I heard the regular, let us take and heave him over, grunt, of duly bearers in the compound. First one duly came in, then a second, and then a third. I heard the duly's dumped on the ground, and the shutter in front of my door shook. That's someone trying to come in, I said, but no one spoke, and I per persuaded myself that it was a gusty wind. The shutter of the room next to mine was attacked, flung back, and the inner door opened. That's some sub-deputy assistant, I said, and he has brought his friends with him. Now they'll talk and spit and smoke for an hour. But there were no voices or footsteps. No one was putting his luggage in the next room. The door shut, and I thanked Providence that I was able to be left in peace. But I was curious to know where the duelies had gone. I got out of bed and looked into the darkness. There was never a sign of a dooley. Just as I was getting into bed again, I heard in the next room the sound that no man in his senses can possibly mistake. The whir of a billiard ball down the length of the slates when the striker is, str is stringing for break. My, my, no other sound was like it. A minute afterwards, there was another weir, and I got into bed. I was not frightened. Indeed, I was not. I was very curious to know what had become of the Dooleys? I jumped into bed for that reason. Next minute, I heard the double click of a cannon and my hair sat up. It is a mistake to say that hair stands up. The skin of the head tightens and you can feel a faint prickling bristling all over the scalp. That is the hair sitting up. There was a whir and a click and both sounds could only have been made by one thing, a billiard ball.
I argued the matter out at great length with myself, and the more I argued, the less probable it seemed that one bed, one table, and two chairs, all the furniture of the room next to mine, could so exactly duplicate the sounds of a game of billiards. After another cannon, a three-cushion one, to judge, by the were, I argued no more. I had found my ghost and would have given worlds to have escaped from that dark bungalow. I listened, and with each listen the game grew clearer. There was a whir on whir and click on click. Sometimes there was a double click and a whir and another click. Beyond any sort of doubt, people were playing billiards in the next room, and the next room was not big enough to hold a billiard table. Between the pauses of the wind, I heard the game go forward, stroke after stroke. I tried to believe that I could not hear the voices, but that attempt was a failure. Do you know what fear is? Not ordinary fear of insult, injury, or death, but abject, quivering, and dreadful of something that you cannot see, fear, that dries the inside of the mouth and half of the throat. Fear that makes you sweat on the palms of the hands and gulp in order to keep the, the uvula at work. This is a fine fear, a great cowardice, and must be felt to be appreciated. The very improbability of billiards in a dak bungalow proved the reality of the thing. No man, drunk or sober, could imagine a game at billiards or invent spinning the crack of a screw cannon. A severe course of dak bungalows has this disadvantage. It breeds infinite credit. It beats infinite credulity. If a man said to a confirmed Dak bungalow hunter, there is a corpse in the next room, and there is a mad girl in the next, but one and the woman and man on that camel have just eloped from a place 60 miles away, the hearer would not disbelieve because he would know that nothing is too wild, grotesque, or horrible to happen in a Dak bungalow. This, this credulity, unfortunately, extends to ghosts. A rational person, fresh from his own house, would have turned on his side and slept. I did not. So surely I was given up as a bad carcass by the scores of things in the bed because the bulk of my blood was in my heart. So surely I did hear every stroke of a long game of billiards played in the echoing room behind the dark barred door. My dominant fear was that the players might win a want a marker. It was an absurd fear because creatures who could play in the dark, would be above such superfluities. I only knew that that was my terror, and it was real. After a long while, the game stopped. The door banged. I slept because I was dead tired. Otherwise, I should have preferred to have kept awake. Not for everything in Asia would I have dropped the door bar and peered into the dark of the next room. When the morning came, I considered that I had done well and wisely, and inquired for the main means of departure. By the way, Cosmo, I said, what were those three duallys doing in my compound in the night? There were no duallys, said the Cosmo. I went into the next room, and the daylight streamed through the open door. I was immensely brave. I would, at that hour, have played black pool with the owner of the big black pool down below. Has this place always been a dak bungalow, I asked. No, said the Cosmo. Ten or twenty years ago, I've forgotten how long it was a billiard room. A how much? A billiard room from the Sahibs who built the railway. I was Cosmo then, in the big house where all the railway Sahibs lived, and I used to come across with Brownie and Shrab. These three rooms were all one, and they held a big table on which the Sahibs played every evening. But the Sahibs are all dead now, and the railway runs, you say, nearly to Kabul. Do you remember anything about the Sahibs? It is long ago, but I remember that one Sahib, a fat man and always angry, was playing here one night. And he said to me, Mongol Khan Brady, Pani Du. And I filled the glass. And he bent over the table to strike, and his head fell lower and lower till it hit the table, and his spectacles came off. And when we, the Sahibs, and myself, ran to lift him, he was dead. I helped carry him out. Aha! He was a strong Sahib. But he is dead, and I, old Mango Khan, am still living by your favor. That was more than enough. I had my ghost, I had my ghost, a first hand authenticated article. I would write 
to the Society of Physical Research. I would paralyze the empire with the news, but I would, first of all, put 80 miles of assessed cropland between myself and that Dak bungalow before nightfall. The Society might send their regular agent to investigate later on. I went into my own room and prepared to pack after noting the facts of the case. As I smoked, I heard the game begin again, with a miss in the bulk of this time, for the whir was a short one. The door was open, and I could see into the room. Click, click. That was a cannon. I entered the room without fear, for there was sunlight within and a fresh breeze without. The unseen game was going on at a tremendous rate, and well it might, when a restless little rat was running to and fro inside the dingy ceiling cloth, and a piece of loose window sash was making fifty breaks off the window bolt as it shook in the breeze. Impossible to mistake the sound of billiard balls, impossible to mistake the whir of a ball over the slate. But I was too but I was to be excused, even when I shut my enlightened eyes, the sound was marvelously like that of a fast game. Entered angrily the faithful partner of my sorrows, Kadir Bakish. This bungalow is very bad and low case. No wonder the presence was disturbed and it speckled. Three sets of dooley bears came to the bungalow late last night when I was sleeping outside and said that it was their custom to rest in the room set apart for the English people. What honor has the Klozma? They tried to enter and I told them to go. No wonder if these Orias have been here that the presence is sorely spotted. It is shame and the work of a dirty man. Kadirbach did not say that he had that he had taken from each gang two annas for rent in advance, and then, beyond my earshot, he'd beaten them with big green umbrella, whose use I could never before define. But Kadir Baksh, Bakash, Bakash, B-A-K-S-H, Baksh, Baksh, had, has no notions of morality. There was an interview with the Cosma, but as he promptly lost his head, wrath gave place to pity, and pity led to a long conversation in the course of which he put fat engineer Sahib's tra tragic death in three separate stations, two of them 50 miles apart. The third shift was to Calcutta, and there Sahib died while driving a dog cart. If I had encouraged him, the cosmonaut would have wandered all through, the all through Bengal with his corpse. I did not go away as soon as I intended. I stayed for the night, while the wind and the rat and the sash and the window boat played a ding-dong, 150 up. Then the wind ran out and the billiards stopped, and I felt that I had ruined my one genuine Hallmark ghost story. Had I only stopped at the proper time, I couldn't have made anything out of it. That was the bittersweet thought of it all. Okay, so that's it for today. And, uh, okay, let me get off of this. Fascinating stuff. Okay, that's going to cover it for today. I appreciate you guys coming. Tomorrow, uh, we kind of have an open day. I may do something over in the big office over there. Maybe do a fun project. I, you know, like I said, I got a bunch of stuff for Christmas and we could do some crafts or whatever over there. So we'll see what, what happens tomorrow. I may tell some ghost stories because I have a lot of ghost stories and there's some projects I'm working on as far as, uh, you know, ghost stuff goes that I'd like to share with you guys. So maybe I'll do that. We'll see how it goes tomorrow. But I appreciate you all coming. And uh, again, today, if you like the show, share it with five people. If you hated the show, share it with five of your enemies. We're equal opportunity here. We're just trying to get the word out about our show. And I'd really appreciate it. Um, again, you can contact me uh, by Googling California Haunts Radio or California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team, and you'll find us. Shoot us an email. Talk to us. You know, YouTube. I'm, I'm on the community page all the time. We can do that, too. But anyway, I will see you tomorrow at 6.30 p.m. Pacific, and I should have some really cool announcements to make about upcoming events and things like that. Have a great rest of your evening, and uh, enjoy your weekend. Bye.